0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you. uh, We've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. But let's pray once more and then we'll dive into God's word. Uh, Lord Jesus, we um, need your mercy to work in our heart. Uh, It is such a wonderful truth that you are a sovereign God who is in control of all things um, and yet you ask us to pray. And that is a mystery uh, that we can think about and we can write about and we can talk about, but we can never actually understand the wonderful gift of inviting us into conversation and supplication with the God who knows better than us. Um, And so, Lord, we pray as we look at your word today that we see how good it is to have a God who speaks to his people, a God who cares that his people thrive in life by obeying what he has given us and reaping the goodness, not of decisions, but of the God who stands behind the decisions. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So if you haven't opened your Bibles, um, as I have not yet done, uh, we're going to be in Proverbs 11 today. And in the 1930s, there was one man who recognized that there are two specific hurdles that were holding back Americans in particular from achieving what they wanted to achieve in the workplace, in whatever they deemed to be successful. And those two things were uh, one's own inability to articulate himself and the ability for that person to to interact with others well. In 1936, this man, Dale Carnegie, published a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People with the subtitle as the only book you will need to lead you to success. So it was published nearly 90 years ago. This past week, it was still number 18 on Amazon's list. Not of all time, but of last week. Last week, it was the number 18 selling book on Amazon. It is the staple for self-help and leadership books. It's sold over 30 million copies worldwide. And why is it that we are so hungry for books of this nature? Well, it's because we want to have success. We want to be wise in how we deal with others and how we understand our own life in the midst of the lives of those who are around us. And the beauty of Proverbs is really the beauty of God's word is that oftentimes our culture, our secular culture proves that the longings we have in life are longings that God actually speaks for and God actually has an opinion on. In fact, I'm going to read for us again what we just read, what Eric read for us in Proverbs chapter 11. And what you're going to hear are principles that seem like they could be published in a packet called how to win friends and influence people. It it is prescriptions for how we might have a life that is successful personally and interpersonally. Listen again to our text today, verses 9 through 15. With his mouth, the godless would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Where there is no guidance... A people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. Whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. So, did you see this picture of a successful life? It concludes with financial things that the wise man wisely stewards his finances and is able to bless others with it. We see the wise man gives winsome counsel. The wise man is well-respected in his community, and the wise man interacts well with those who are around him. This text speaks to the felt needs that our culture has shown it has an endless appetite for. And yet this book is not like any other self-help book. This book, God's word to us, is unique. And while it addresses public perception and interpersonal communication, Solomon, The author of this portion of Proverbs doesn't start with those two features of life. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at three things in our text today. And the first thing we're going to see when it comes to living a life of success and satisfaction by God's standards is that the wise person, we first see in their life a personal conviction. So we're going to circle back to that. That's going to be in verse 9. Then in verses 10 through 11, we're going to see the public witness of the wise person. And then in verses 12 through 14, we're going to see the interpersonal wisdom that God prescribes for us. That's the roadmap to the successful life we're going to be looking at in today's text. But what's interesting is where Solomon starts in verse 9 is he doesn't start with a group of people getting together and wanting to bless a community. He actually starts with the assumed threat to a community. It starts with those who it says would destroy their neighbor. Look again at Proverbs 11 verse 9. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. But by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. So, in verse 15, at the end of this passage today, the wise man is seen as one who who wisely stewards his resources so that he can actually lend generously to those who are around. It. it is to the benefit of the community that the wise man makes wise financial decisions. doesn't foolishly give away his money to someone who will cause financial harm. And yet in contrast to that, here in verse nine, we see the godless man not lending with his wealth, but lending with his mouth. Something that destroys a community that would harm his neighbor. And here he's not telling us what, what is dangerous?" or "What is at the heart of this man? But Proverbs has already shown us that the mouth of a fool is often a double-edged sword. We've seen, I believe, three times now, where Proverbs has says, the wicked man with his babbling mouth conceals violence." There are those who, with their words, intentionally wish to cause harm. But then there's also kind of a less nefarious category of the fool who though they don't intentionally want to harm anyone, the fruit of their mouth is void of any wisdom. And to follow that is to end up in a place also void of any wisdom, void of any life, unchanged in the places we need change the most. And that's because even what the fool in the best attempt seeks to do is to communicate a reality void of God's wisdom. It's actually here where we begin to see the heart of what makes this wicked man so dangerous to his community. He's godless. The godless person would destroy his neighbor. Now, what's interesting is we live in a culture which is increasingly post-Christian. There's less and less of an awareness of Christian morality or uh, the, the story of the scripture. And yet, to call somebody godless still is kind of like an insult. It seems to imply this complete moral failure and debasedness in life. And it's interesting because while there is a moral implication of one who is godless in this text, first and foremost, it's not talking about someone's actions here, is it? It's talking about someone's relationship. They are without God. There is no knowledge, no concern, no relational intimacy with the God of Scripture. This man doesn't know God, therefore he has a heart detached from God which is therefore a heart detached from the one who created us, the one who designed us, the one who knows what is good for us and knows what is dangerous for us. And why is it dangerous to have these kind of lips filling our society? Well, we saw this last week in Proverbs eleven four. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The riches of the world whatever it is that you attach that value to, it cannot deliver you. Not your adventure, not your savings account, not your car, it cannot deliver you. Which means this, that in listening to the babbling mouths of the godless, you might find yourself destroyed now in an intentional deceitful scheme. There are wicked people who want to cause harm because they delight in wickedness. They might destroy you now. But the truth is, even if it's a nice wicked guy, They might destroy you later. You might spend your life living for the riches of that man's wisdom and at the end realize that you might have attained everything the world says you should and yet you have still not been delivered from death. It refuses to acknowledge the real condition at the center of our hearts, which is the problem of godlessness. And so when we listen to this threat to a community, it is this threat of a man who sells salt water to a dehydrated people. They drink the water because they think it quenches their thirst, but they're unaware that that's what's actually killing them. That is harming them. And It's in the face of this ominous talker that we see the distinction of Christian wisdom. And this is our first point today, where the wicked person knows nothing about God. We see in contrast the personal conviction of the righteous. We see that conviction in the second half of verse 9, right? Did you catch it? With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. Do you see it there? See, Proverbs is not merely a pragmatic book where you grab the best principles in life that seem to fit your lifestyle, and you then apply it as you see fit. The book of Proverbs does not start with the wisdom of the world. It starts with the principle of being wise towards God. The righteous are delivered from the mouth of the wicked by their knowledge. You see, Solomon's gonna get to relational wisdom in public and relational wisdom in this interpersonal sense later on in this text. But here, the relational wisdom you need to see to be one who thrives in this world, who does not fall prey to the deceitful schemes of this life is the person who relationally knows God and his righteousness. This isn't new. This is actually where Proverbs started, remember? Proverbs 1, verse seven. Solomon says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of knowledge fools despise wisdom and instruction the principle of biblical wisdom is not street smarts or book smarts it is knowing god in the way he has revealed himself in scripture And this is important because everything we see in Proverbs, what we're beginning to see, we're now 11 chapters into this 31 chapter book, which means hopefully we'll be out of a pandemic by the time we finish this six years from now. Um, When we get there, what we're seeing that our hearts are being turned behind, every practical aspect of Proverbs is a relational intimacy with the God of Proverbs. It's calling us to know him and to trust him. Last week in looking at righteousness, we saw that righteousness is not just blanket morality attached to whatever our culture likes at the time. Righteousness is attached to the righteous God of Scripture. Those who act in righteousness do do what is moral, but they do it because they're faithfully relying on the God who is holy and pure and lovely and good, who delights in just scales and abhors what is crooked. See, you can walk into a bookstore. There's a few of those left. You can go look on Amazon and find most self-help books. And regardless of where you live or what you believe, you could take that book and apply it to your life. But this book of Proverbs is not that kind of book. Proverbs is primarily a God help book. It believes that God will help his people as his people increasingly see that God is faithful to save that relying on God is greater than relying on riches, that seeing God's provision of righteousness in Jesus Christ is seeing the only provision you need to navigate life's difficult decisions. And this is where we must learn to see the beauty of God in the gospel. We're gonna to get to some wonderfully practical things. In our text today, we're getting there to the Proverbs we want. that go on our coffee mugs and are on our, our refrigerators, the things that shape our actions. But before we get there, we have to see that none of this makes sense if we don't know God like this. We will be delivered from nothing if we don't have a knowledge of this God and the way in which he makes people righteous. You see, we see in our hearts that we were once godless. The problem isn't that people do wrong. The problem is that people are godless. That you in your hearts at one point did not worship God, did not know God. We were the ones, each and every one of us, Paul says, We're destined for destruction. But by God's grace, he bridged the godless gap. By God's grace, through the wonderful good news of the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he awakened us to have eyes to see. We were the ones woefully unrighteous. We had no hope of being delivered from the mouth of man, let alone the righteous judgment of God, except that Jesus takes our unrighteousness. The one who is with God forever became on the cross apart from God and unrighteous so that we can be won back to what our hearts long for. Be won back into the good graces of a love stronger than death. And the more you come to know the depth of Jesus' work on the cross and believe by faith that it is counted to you, the more you find Jesus trustworthy in all of life. The more knowledge you have of the gospel, and I'm not talking about like the more theological words you know, though that helps. Theology helps, not in terms of equipping you with 25 cent words. Theology helps and then at the end the result is you know God more deeply. And as we know God more deeply, it changes how we interact with others and it changes how we respond to threats to our own life. How many of you have already been contacted about your car's extended warranty expiring? Those are ominous phone calls at first, aren't they? It always sounds really official. At that point, you're ready. This is a line from KJ. Like, you're willing to confess to Watergate. Whatever it is, you did it. (laughs) It sounds official. They've got numbers and codes. But then at some point, I'm assuming, if you have extended your car's extended warranty, maybe see Proverbs 11, 15. Um, But most of us don't do that because there comes a point where we stop and we say, I never bought an extended warranty. I know this doesn't apply to me. And you see, when we know what God has done, that same knowledge delivers us. When we see that Jesus himself has purchased our deliverance from death, we can encounter the twofold schemes, the schemes of our own heart, which tend to cause us to disbelieve the gospel, and the schemes of man, which often oppress us, even as we believe the gospel. And we can say to the face of this babel, I know I don't need this. I know in the gospel, God has proven that in relying on him and obeying him and entrusting him, even in difficult circumstances, I will suffer no loss. That God will prove himself sufficient to me even in the day of my distress. In the face of those who, who are the object of the world's destruction, the righteous know God and are delivered because they know they don't need to sin To avoid sin. Isn't that often what we do? We don't want to sin, but we know obedience is hard. And so we try to sin in order to avoid sin. We sin in order to get away from sin, but we don't need to do that because Jesus has delivered us from sin. Or we know that we don't need to buy satisfaction from a constantly dissatisfied world. The world says, have this and you'll be delightful. And yet we look at their Facebook page and we're like, that's not delight. There's no joy there. So the question for you at this point is, do you have this sort of relational knowledge of God? Because if you don't have this, if you don't know what God has done in the gospel to prove himself faithful, to deal with our greatest problem of godlessness, then everything else that follows will miss the mark. But look at how the apostle Paul speaks of this in Philippians 3, verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. How are we found in Christ? What is this comfort? This is what we looked at last week. Our comfort of being in Christ is not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Life in this broken world is hard and it's difficult. And yet when we know what Christ has done to give us his righteousness, even in the midst of our suffering, we find a comfort that leads us to endure. There are times where you'll feel threatened in personal relationships, which might seem overwhelming, but here we see that trusting and acting in accord with Jesus Christ is our greatest hope in an anxious world. And this relational conviction is key not only for you, this relational conviction of what you know to be true in the gospel is actually key for others as well. Your neighbors who have godless men seeking to destroy them, this knowledge can deliver them too. This knowledge blesses them. Where the wicked would destroy their neighbor, Solomon goes on to show in the remainder of our passage today that the righteous would seek to bless them. The righteous would be a benefit to them. In other words, what we know about God in the gospel gives us what we need to uniquely live as witnesses to those who are perishing. And this is where we now transition to our second point today. This is public witness. So we are now convicted of God's righteousness and so we read righteousness here, we're understanding that righteousness is a reliance on God's salvation. It is doing what is right, knowing that God stands behind you. But now let's look at verses nine through 11. With his mouth, the godless would destroy his neighbor, but by knowledge, the righteous are delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense. But a man of understanding, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll finish the verse anyway. This is good too. But a man of understanding remains silent. And so here in verses 9 through 11, we see the application of the first principle. If the godless brings destruction to his neighbor, the righteous who know God brings the opposite of destruction, brings joy, brings exaltation, brings gladness, brings blessing. And this public witness is part of why when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, when God created the first humans, he made them in the image of God, in the image of God, he made them. And what that means is that everywhere Adam and Eve were to go and in the task God gave Adam and Eve of expanding the garden and cultivating the soil, they were to expand the space where people could see God in his image bearers. Whereas human population increased and Adam and Eve were the image of God in perfect splendor, without sin, the world would look at Adam and Eve, they would look at creation and say, what a good God there is. Look at how wonderful and how lovely and pure the God is who graciously creates and gives relationship to his people. Now, when sin came, that relationship got disjointed, and now we are not the perfect image of God. Jesus is, but Jesus restores this image to us. And This is so important to see because in Missoula, we can look around and we see, I think it's 1% of our city's budget is designated for public beautification. And basically that's what we see in these public art pieces of them painting um, the electrical junction boxes and the murals you see around town. It's meant to beautify our city by bringing art to it. Christians, we see in Proverbs chapter 11, Christians walking in righteousness, our God's beautification program on the world. We are meant to bear the beauty and glory of our king. We are meant to be images of the infinite glory and goodness of a God who is only good and staggeringly lovely. In other words, pursuing righteousness we saw in verse nine is not only good for you, but you pursuing righteousness in public is actually good for those around you. It is actually what loves your community most deeply. We see this in multiple places in scripture. Even in a godless context like Babylon or in Egypt, there are men like Daniel and Joseph who were praised for their uprightness and righteousness and integrity in the city and in the workplace. And they're praised because it actually provided a tangible blessing to those who are around them. And why is that? Why is it that when Christians are rightfully seeking to obey God, it is generally a blessing to those who are around them? Well, we just saw it in verse 9. It's Christians who see life through the lens of God's knowledge, who see the world as it was created to be, which means that when you know God through Jesus Christ, you know what God thinks about what helps us. You know what God thinks about what hurts us. And practically, this means that if there are two individuals, a Christian and a non-Christian who seek to go bless their community, the non-Christian starts with the entire spectrum of what he thinks might be a blessing to the community. The Christian starts by having that narrowed immediately to to know in their hearts that what God prohibits will not bless anyone. What God says is harmful is truly harmful, not only to me, but to those Who are around me. For example, just this past week, I was talking to one of our members who's in healthcare, and she recognizes that uh, reproductive health and sexual health have long been an underserved part of women's care in our society. She realizes a real need there. A need that is trumpeted all across our culture. But she also knows the solution to this is not to create a culture of casual sex or abortion, because these are clearly harmful to everyone involved from God's perspective. She accurately identifies a need, but she refuses to find the answer in what culture says and in, instead says if this is what God says is what's best, this is really what's best, even if it seems countercultural. And this identifies two sides of the coin that you need to be comfortable with and encouraged by when it comes to living out your righteousness in public. And the first side is this wonderful truth that as we follow Jesus in our private life, our public life will follow and it will act as a witness to God. Look at what Jesus himself says in Matthew 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? Why? so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You should be optimistic that as you pursue holiness and righteousness and seek to model the command to love God and love others, that you will generally be a blessing to those around you and not a burden. You will generally encourage those around you and not cause them to be disheartened. You will generally cause people to fall deeper in love with Jesus and move deeper into the community of faith rather than finding the gospel and the church and Jesus to be offensive. It is good that the church would do this and live in this way. This means that we should desire. You should desire as Christians. To have an influence in places like government, on school boards, in nonprofit places, in your neighborhood communities, in your study groups at school, and here in the church. We believe that Christians being Christian in public is part of God's plan to win the nations to Himself. And actually, part of our community groups, our goal for community groups is twofold to encourage one another and to serve the city. And we are humbly trying to figure out together what it looks like to serve our city well. Nothing like a pandemic frustrates what little growth we had in that area. But we wanna do this because we know that as we are Christian in public, we give the world an opportunity to see the joy we take in the gospel, to get glimpses of what life is like in the new heavens and in the new earth. So that's the positive side. But the flip side of this is that we no longer live in an Israelite city where everybody is seemingly trying to strive to serve the same God by the same rules. It was hard in Scripture, and it's hard now. We live in a post-Christian world where what is seen as loving and righteous in the eyes of God is sometimes seen as hostility in the eyes of the world. This isn't new. It's not a distinct problem that is, is part of our 21st century world. In fact, we saw this in the early church. In Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and people are getting saved left and right. It is wonderful. People are being snatched from the throes of darkness and worshiping the living God. And at one hand, people are rejoicing over this because they're experiencing the freedom from sin. They're experiencing the love of Jesus. But then there's a riot that chases the disciples out of town. And it's not because what they were preaching was illegal. It's because so many people were getting saved that no one was buying idols. And the idol makers said, this gospel is dangerous. This gospel threatens our livelihood. And they chased them out of Ephesus. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas encounter a young girl who's spiritually oppressed by an evil spirit And on top of that, she's being exploited by her masters as a fortune teller. And this woman, as stirred up by the evil spirit inside of her, is harassing the disciples. And so so they turn and they cast this evil spirit out of this girl. And this girl is wonderfully released from this spiritual bondage that had been crippling her and controlling her. She experiences a freedom unparalleled in her entire life. And yet look at what happens when her masters hear of this in Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 20. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. And so here we see a woman wonderfully and remarkably freed, liberated, loved by Jesus. And yet what her city sees is two men whose gospel took away the livelihood of two other people. Because it was this evil spirit that gave her the ability to tell fortunes. And when that was removed by the grace and freedom of salvation, they realized their hope at making a quick buck was gone. This world is not heaven. This church is not the kingdom of God. Which means that in this life, gospel principles and the gospel realities of love and justice and flourishing will not match up with the world's understanding of love and justice and flourishing. But this is why we must revisit verse 9 we must know in a difficult world that it is a robust knowledge and comfort we draw from righteousness which allows us to endure when culture stands against us. And here's this weird tension we need to keep because a lot of times we can arrogantly say, who cares what the world thinks? Proverbs 11 says you should care what the world thinks. You should want to be a blessing. You should care about how you're perceived. But here's the hope. The hope is When the world is thinking about you in a hostile and wrong-headed way, we have the wonderful privilege of looking through Christ at how God thinks of us. That when the world stands against us because we are faithfully obeying God, we can then look at God and realize that through Jesus, we stand exactly where we need to be. We stand in his pleasure. We stand in his comfort. We stand in his mercy. We stand in his affection. And we take greater joy knowing what God thinks of us then we do what the world thinks of us, even though we are to care about that. But there's this deep comfort we draw from when we face a world that disdains us by seeing the God who loves us. But this is where the lives of righteousness might not be praised in our city, but how much more when we consider this church should righteousness be praised? Good things are rarely contagious for us, but here righteousness is. Righteousness is meant to cause others to rightly rejoice in Jesus, to see the fruit of following a risen king. So as a body, let us cheer the righteousness we see in others, as we are encouraged to live it out in joyful obedience to Jesus. And so this is where Solomon now transitions away from our activity in the broader community. And now he zooms specifically in into our interpersonal relationships. And this is where we see our third point today. This is the interpersonal wisdom of Proverbs chapter 11. So read with me verses 12 through 14. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. Where there is no guidance, the people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So three verses, back to back to back, all of which deal with how we interact with others on the basis of our words. Specifically, what's being contrasted is the way in which the wicked use their words and the way in which the righteous use their words, all of which are actually revealing our hearts the hearts of the wicked and the hearts of the righteous. We're gonna spend just briefly here in closing just a couple minutes on each of these because it actually shapes how we as a church interact with each other when it comes to discipleship, which is just helping each other follow Jesus and how we counsel each other through the gospel. And first we see that when it comes to interpersonal relationships, the wise person starts with love and not hate. Look at verse 12. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. So here's this contrast. Remember, when we look at Proverbs, the primary way Proverbs makes its point is by contrast and by seeing what's there and what's not there. And here we see a belittling fool and we see the silence of a wise man. But more specifically, what we're actually seeing is not so much a contrast of words, but a contrast of hearts. The fool belittles, why? Why? Because he lacks sense. Or perhaps depending upon your Bible translation, the word that's behind that, it says because he lacks heart. There's a problem with the foolish man's heart that leads him to belittle. And the absence indicates that the righteous man's heart is different. The fool belittles people because they don't have the proper love, but the wise are different. And so the principle here that we're seeing is not that you'll never speak to someone who has sinned against you or has a different opinion than you. The principle is that when the righteous have a proper understanding of their own heart through God, everything changes. When the righteous person has sense and they know that before God, they were once God's enemy, that they were once the godless one, then it then changes the way you view the one who is currently your enemy or the one who is currently godless. They don't t- turn towards those who are in sin with the desire to belittle the person. They don't turn to them with a hostility for who they are. You see, understanding your own heart before God and the weight of your own sin allows you to change your heart and therefore your response to those who are around you. You see, one big downside to our 21st century world is that much of our conversation has become kind of depersonalized through social media. And so very rarely, specifically in the last year, do we ever have like super meaningful conversations in person with each other? It's often through text, on social media, and through email, which means we rarely encounter people, but we often encounter the opinions of people. And the difficult side effect of this is that sometimes we flatten people to nothing more than the sum of their opinions. And whenever we view someone of a differing opinion as just a differing opinion, it's very easy to belittle and to hate. There are opinions and actions and worldviews which Christians should hate that stand against God's holy and righteous word. And yet when we understand that those are held by a person, we are able to not belittle them we were able to actually care for them even if their opinions are different. Jesus didn't die for opinions. He died for people and he died for people who had bad opinions of him. He died for people who didn't see God as glorious when he always saw God as glorious but he did so so they might see and be saved. That's not to say there aren't bad opinions and dangerous mistakes, but that is to say that Christians understand apart from the grace of God in your own life, that person could be you. You could be the one with the bad opinion. You could be the one who has sinned against your brother or sister in Christ. And you know what? The one with a right understanding of his own heart, the one who has gospel sense, realizes that if they were to realize they were the one in the wrong, that they would want someone to not belittle them to. That they would want someone to care and to restore to a more biblical understanding of Jesus' love for them, even if it was different from what you were once believing. So we see we start with a love for people and not a hate for them. But secondly, we see that the wise are responsible to pursue help, not harm. Proverbs 11 verse 13 Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. But he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. So here's this scenario, Solomon's assuming, where someone gets a secret from a friend, from a neighbor, from a coworker, and the wicked person turns and immediately starts to slander and reveal the secrets, but the trustworthy person in spirit is silent and keeps a thing covered. What does this mean? Well, it's easy for us to see this and know what it means, but there's two things we want to look at right now. The first is that we should pursue types of relationships where our brothers and sisters and even our neighbors feel safe enough to share these things with us, even if those things are shameful and sinful. But second, it means that when people share these things with you, that you prove trustworthy with their secrets, and you do not seek to slander and reveal, but instead to care and to cover Now, in Solomon's talking here, the tone is probably not that of good secrets. It's not that someone came and said, hey, I lost 10 pounds. It's more like, hey, I'm really struggling in my marriage. Hey, I really screwed up in this area of sexual purity. And what happens in that moment is what Solomon is saying is your spirit, your heart decides what you do with that information the careless person can use that information to slander and harm an individual. They share it with others because they might think in kind of a devious way that now that I know this, I can actually lower other people's view of this person and therefore raise my own status. They begin to think, or perhaps even more innocently, not with a direct intent to belittle somebody or slander them, they think, man, how great must I be if this person confided in me. We want other people to know how trustworthy I am. So I'm going to take this secret and go to Carol and say, Carol, guess what Joan shared with me? So that we might feel more trustworthy while at the same time showing ourselves not trustworthy. Or we might know we have areas in our life that those around us know we struggle with. But it's not this area. And so what we want to do to make ourselves feel better is we want to let those around us know, can you believe Joe struggles in this area? What Christian would struggle in this area? I certainly don't. We prove ourselves to be irresponsible, slandering, harming people. Our intent of what we do with this secret is not to help, and it doesn't care at all if we harm. But the trustworthy spirit wants to help in a genuine way. It knows the very nature of a secret implies a level of vulnerability, of guilt, and of shame. And so they carefully invite others into the situation as they need to, not to create a peep show, but to gain wisdom and care for this individual by calling them into the light of Jesus Christ. Look at what James says about this in James chapter 5. his closing verses. Verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. See, this is important. Covering sin does not or covering sin does not mean not addressing the secret but it does look like helping them with all the gentleness of grace so that we can bring them back to the gospel and so cover more sins and so care for them. So a question to ask yourself when a secret is shared with you in a discipling relationship or in a casual conversation is am I being trustworthy to two places, both with the gospel of grace that was given to me, but also am I being trustworthy of the individual who has confided in me And now as we begin to see, just in these first two points here, we see that it's with an interpersonal care, the wise person is loving and not belittling. They understand that we sin and that we don't just write off people who sin, but we care for them despite their sin. We also see that the wise person is committed by helping people with grace and actually benefiting them and not harming them. And now... Now when we see that love, not hate, and we see that help, not harm, is there, now we as individuals can actually begin to receive the counsel of those who want to to help us in our righteousness. This is the third point. This is counsel, not carelessness. Verse 14, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Why do we lovingly speak godly counsel to those around us? Because if we aren't willing to provide as part of God's people godly counsel, a community will fall. And quite frankly, if you've been Christian in this room, as part of this church, for any significant amount of time, you've realized that when you encounter your brother and sister in Christ, living in a way that is not righteous, Or making decisions completely devoid of considering the gospel implications of it, you've realized it's a lot easier to do nothing. It's a lot easier to say, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. What's being prescribed here is the much more difficult route, but it's what starts in Proverbs 11, verse 9. We are not of those who would let their neighbors be destroyed. We are of those who trust in righteousness, that it will deliver, that it is for the good of the community. The greatest command to love God and love others prohibits all of us from being careless about the state of those who are around us. And this is again why we have membership at Sovereign Hope. We have a membership meeting coming up. And membership is this time where we say together as Christians, I want to help you as you help me. We want to hold each other to this righteousness. We have this shared knowledge in the gospel and we together are refusing to let each other think that our greatest joy and the greatest good for our city comes from rebelling against righteousness, but instead instead enduring in it. It means that I want you to guide me back to righteousness when it seems I'm living outside of it. It means you want me to come to you when you're wrestling with a difficult decision in career, Or in a relationship, knowing that godly counsel helps you see things more clearly. And what we see in this text too is that understanding your own role as part of the abundance of counselors is naturally humbling. There's a multitude of counselors here. There is one chief counselor for the church, and it's not Tyler, and it's not KJ, and it's not Daniel, it's not any one of our elders, and it's not you. It's Jesus Christ. But what God has given to the individual Christian is the council of the corporate church. What a gift that God has given you, us, your fellow members, to help you know what is good, to remind you of God's faithfulness in the gospel, to call you back to his mercy, to hold up his loving care. But this also means that we need to be reminded that this counsel is a privilege, even when at times it seems frustrating to receive it even when it seems that other people are frustrated with how you're living, sticking their nose in your own business. They're always telling you what to do and what not to do. But this is where we need to look at the unity of this text. There are certainly ways in which broken people can give broken counsel. But this is where we step back and look at the, the sum result of all of this. If we see that the wise speak out in a multitude of humility, understanding love, not hate, they carefully want to help you and not harm you, they want to bring you to safety on God's path and not the shame of sin, then wouldn't we honestly say, who doesn't want to be loved like this? Who doesn't want friends like this? When others approach us to help guide us to the path of righteousness, you too, as the one receiving the counsel, are being presented with the decision to trust righteousness. That this is part of God's good for you. That God has given you a group of believers to help, to aid, to care, and to love. You see, the mouth of the world often tells us that if anyone doesn't affirm anything in your life, then that is no true friend. That relationships must be always and only affirming. But God's word here says that those who truly love a brother learn to lean in with righteousness, even if that means challenging the way people are living. Even if that means loving them by saying, I think you need to hear this. I'm not gonna belittle you, I'm not gonna harm you, but I'm gonna show you the wonderful joy of the gospel. You see, this text, which deals with personal relationships, which hold up to our world, which deals with the desires of a world longing for something to praise, which deals with your personal contentment when things are hard, none of it works if you don't actively trust that God's righteousness is for your good in Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, when we stand together, when we affirm what we will in just a few moments, the Apostles' Creed, that that is for us, we have tasted in our salvation that we can rely on this everywhere. That we know what it looks like to successfully love others and live publicly as Christian because we have seen the beauty of our King who has saved the church by giving her his own righteousness. And we have the joy of however many days God has given us to live that out in public for his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. I pray that you might change the way we interact with others, change the way we live in our world, but most importantly, Lord, I pray that you bring us a knowledge that delivers, a knowledge of your righteousness, of your faithfulness to save in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we might be a distinct church, because we have a distinct trust in you. I pray that the way in which we interact with each other after service today and in community groups throughout the week models the wonderful work of relying on righteousness. I pray that in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhoods this week, we might boldly believe that our own personal conviction on the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out is ultimately what is best for our world even when our world finds it odd. I pray that through all of these challenges, we might stand in the confidence of knowing what Christ has done to save us and in so doing, rejoice for what he has given us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.